Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool Inside Value, all the way from Sydney, Australia, Mr. Whoa. Joe Mager. Hey, from Joe. Motley Fool Supernova, Ow. Matt Argusinger, and from yep. Million Dollar Portfolio, Ron Gross. How you doing? Good to see you guys. Yeah. Good to, you, good to be here. Joe, one travel tip for the folks at home. It's good to have you back in studio uh, when you're making the trip from Sydney, Australia, all the way to Fool HQ. Any tips? Yeah, don't sleep at all. So that way, <laughs> when you get here, you can sleep the first night that you're here, you'll be awake for about 33 hours, sleep over that, jet lag, conquered. Is business class essential or higher? Well, the fool didn't... Uh... <laughs> okay. Let's no, move on. Not this time. We're not paying our bills, in case you don't know. This yeah. week, we've got the latest from big banks, big tech, and big fines. We will go inside one of the most powerful and secretive institutions in the world. And as always, we will share a few stock ideas to put on your watch list. But we begin this week with the Fed chief. On Wednesday, Ben Bernanke stunned the investing world by announcing the Fed's bond-buying program will continue as is. The news sent both the Dow and S&P 500 to all-time record highs. And Ron Gross, I'll start with you. He had the green light from Wall Street. We had CEOs coming out saying we're expecting the taper to begin, going from $85 billion to $75 billion. Some saying he made the wrong call. What do you think? I think, uh, based on the economic data that we have in front of us, I, I think he did the right thing. Um, the fact that the media had convinced us all that he was going to taper, I think, is what caused the surprise. Um, if you look at unemployment, if you look at GDP growth, um, things are not that strong. Um, he could maybe start taper is an interesting word. You can you know you can cut back by one billion and, and that's a taper. He could certainly start slow, and I do expect when he starts it'll be you know five or ten billion dollar uh, taper. Um, and, and I and I think I'm going to trust him to do it when he thinks it's right to do. It's it's going to happen. It's coming. Uh, the question is, what do you want to do about it? And yet, Matt, in terms of the window of opportunity, again, some people are saying, look, he had the window right there. He's not going to get that again in three months. Right. And my well, my question is, what is Bernanke see? And, and part of it might be the sluggish economy, as, as Ron said, but also he might be looking ahead to October here, and we've got sort of this we've got this debt ceiling debate coming again. We've got Congress, who's you know who's got come to some kind of budget agreement here, which we know is going to be almost impossible. And maybe he sees that and says, "Gosh, you know, if the if the U.S. gets another credit ding, if Treasuries sell off because of that, rates are going to go higher." You know, on the monetary side. I, I don't want to. I, I, I got to stay ahead of that, and so maybe it's a little bit of caution on his part because of that. What do you think, Joe? I think the bigger story is just how people are or are not getting ready for higher interest rates. So, REITs and MLPs are still very <laughs> expensive here in America. I think they are going to get absolutely crushed when rates do start to rise. As a value investor, were you at all disappointed because it's got to be harder to find value stocks when the market is hitting all-time highs, and it was already at an all-time high, and he sent it even higher? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, I am. I mean, it's a tough market to find cheap stocks. It absolutely is. And and I'm, I hear a lot from people, you know. So what should we do about it? If if tapering is coming, if interest rates are going higher, what should we do about it? And I don't think you want to become a market timer because my experience is that that kind of never works out. You never get it right. But with so many stocks hitting highs, um, I think you can look at your portfolio and you can selectively maybe sell some or all of these stocks that have kind of run their course and have limited upside left. 
and and just organically by doing that, you should really be doing that always. You'll move into some cash and maybe insulate yourself a little bit if, if we see a correction. Here are some of the stocks that hit all-time highs this week. 3M, Amazon, Boeing, FedEx, General Motors, MasterCard, Nike, Starbucks, and Visa. That is a pretty nice cross-section of the U.S. economy. Joel, I'll start with you. Of those nine, is there one you're particularly drawn to? Well, I own most of them. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm thrilled. Lunch is on oh. <laughs> I'm thrilled. Uh, not business class, though. Uh, my favorite of the bunch, and I think all those companies are doing very well, and they should be at all-time highs. Uh, my favorite's probably Amazon. Uh, you know, it's it's classically expensive, but if you buy a Ferrari at a 30% discount, you're still getting a bargain, and that's the kind of business I think of this as. Uh, still the biggest, baddest player in online retail, which is still sub-6% of U.S. retail. So there's still a long runway here, and I think that, again, shares look expensive, but I think over the long term, you'll be very happy. Maddie, what about I, you? I like the Amazon call. I will just say, though, that GM, all-time high. I mean, I'm surprised Joe didn't bring this up. I mean, this is a company that was dead, or it was almost dead, um, going back about five years ago. And to see the business hitting an all-time high, and to see you know what auto sales have done so far this year, it's yeah, it's an incredible turnaround. Yeah, story. I was a couple years early on that thesis, <laughs> unfortunately. But as we've talked about previously, you look at Europe maybe starting to turn the corner for the big automakers, Ford and GM. Uh, maybe even brighter days ahead for General Motors. Ron, what about you? I like to keep an eye on FedEx because of, of its bellwetherness. Is that a word? Can we use that <laughs> mm, word? Can we sure coin now. that? Mm. Um, it really tell, tells me a lot about when I hear them speak about where we're going in the economy. And they had been struggling on the express side. The ground business has been okay. But internationally, a lot of competition. Um, and they, they were struggling. They put some cost cuts in place. Now they say they think they're going to be able to raise rates in the future. Um, they recently reported earnings um, that were solid. Um, so they are indicating that things are looking up. Um, so I like to keep an eye on what they have to say. It is not quite as big as the companies we just discussed. But another stock hitting a new all-time high this week is Tesla Motors. Maddie up more than 400% year to date. The market cap, this is what caught my eye. The market cap is now over $22 billion, which is nearly half the market cap of General Motors. Is that justified? Well, it's. I, I, I do this. I mean, I, <laughs> bear with me here. I mean, I take I, a breath. I, I want to compare this. I mean, I like to say, I like to compare this. I mean, Tesla is going to sell about 21,000 cars this year. You know, GM, BMW, Ford, name. These, these, these companies sell millions of cars every year. And it's, it's interesting to make those comparisons and see where Tesla's valuation is. At the same time, we have to remember that th- this is an altogether a little bit of a different company. The gross margins, for example, for Tesla are probably going to approach 30% this year. Elon Musk wants to get those up to 35%. A GM, a BMW, usually happy to be in the 10 to 15% range on the gross margin level. So it's a much more profitable company. It's, the gross margins are certainly approaching Porsche like levels. That's, that's a little bit of a differentiator. At the same time, there's a lot going on with this company. It's a lot more than just cars. At the same time, it is up 5x over the past year. I, I, it's, it's high. Joe, it's obviously not a value stock, but you just got done talking about Amazon and how it's never the stock has really never looked cheap. Is Tesla at all attractive to you as a value investor if you have a long enough runway? If you think this is a company that can execute, so obviously not cheap today, but maybe over the next 10 years, it it pays for itself. No. Um, <laughs> I, I could so see surprised. Tesla going on to do great things. Obviously, it's got a great leadership team. They're making great products. But at this valuation, probabilistically, you are deeply unlikely to deliver strong results in terms of the share price. I mean, it's selling at 16 times sales. GM's at 0.3 times sales. 
obviously there are different things to account for there, but mm-hmm. but on a very high level, this is a super premium price, and I think people are probably just going to be disappointed that it doesn't grow into that. Microsoft is spending billions on something other than buying other companies. The tech giant announced a plan this week to buy back $40 billion worth of stock. Ron, they're also increasing the dividend by 22%. You like these moves? Yeah, I think they're pretty good. Um, $40 billion is 15% of the market cap. Um, we, th- we think the stock is undervalued here, so that's a good capital allocation. 3.4% dividend yield, I like that, especially in a company like Microsoft that isn't um, a, a huge grower in the future. It's obviously a very mature company. Some would say a company in decline. Um, Some would say. <laughs> we actually, we, we've recently moved the stock to hold, um, having had it at a buy for quite some time. Um, they're looking for a new CEO. They're changing strategies. They're, they're buying Nokia. There's a lot of changes going on that, that make the execution risk um, relatively significant, much more than we thought beforehand. So we've moved the stock down to hold, and we're actually looking at the allocation to see if we're properly invested there. Steve Ballmer is going to step down at some point in the next 12 months. What does Microsoft need if you're putting the you know if you're Bill Gates and you're putting together the job description? What do you need out of your next CEO? Because the, we go back in time and we have the benefit of hindsight. It seemed at the time when Balmer rose to become CEO, he was a guy who was a great operator and it made sense. What does Microsoft need now? Well, since they've laid out where they want to go um, to basically you know move more towards devices, you def- you have to get someone that is strong there. So you can't get someone that would have loved to run the old Microsoft, for example. Um, they've kind of made their bed, and now they've got to find someone to sleep in it. And I think that actually makes it more difficult. You've got to uh, find someone that really buys into it, because um, you can't have someone new come in and then all, all start restructuring the other way. It's it's extremely disruptive. So um, I think it's going to going to be a ha- hard thing to find, but obviously. There's many talented people out there. They'll they'll get it done. But as I said before, there's a lot of execution risk here. I was going to say that sounds increasingly hard to find when you put it that way. If their attitude really is no, 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 we need you not just to be a great CEO. We need you to run the company in a certain way. I don't know, Matty. Who's going to sign up for that? I know, it doesn't sound like a good gig to me. And I just have to say, why why such this focus on on hardware and devices? I, I just, there's a lot of things Microsoft does really well. Operating software tools, um, you know, that help office productivity. It's just that they're. We've seen what's happened with the Surface. I, I don't. Know. <laughs> well, and we were talking earlier this week about Grand Theft Auto, so I know you're also including Xbox in oh, there. Well, sure. Coming up, advice for young investors. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Hey, it's Chris here. Is your business protected from data loss? If it isn't, it should be. Join the 100,000 businesses who trust Mosey to protect their critical business files. Mosey automatically backs up your critical files to world-class data centers with maximum security. It's easy to set up and use. It saves you time and costs up to 80% less than other solutions. Mosey is the most trusted name in cloud backup. So visit mosey.com, use the promo code FOOL to save 10% on your initial purchase. That's M O Z Y.com. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Joe Mager, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. This week, JP Morgan agreed to pay $920 million in penalties over its 2012 London whale trade that went badly. The company also admitted that it violated regulations as part of the settlement. So I turn now to shareholder of JP Morgan stock, <laughs> Joe Mager. Happy shareholder. Do you own every stock? No, about 35. Okay. 
This was a slap on the wrist for them, wasn't it? Yeah, it's just a slap on the wrist. I mean, the the real cost here was the actual trade, and, and I think that's as it should be. I mean, they got completely hammered on the trade, and it was a huge mistake, and obviously there were poor internal controls around it, and then they could have been more forthright about uh, <laughs> internally and externally about the handling. That said, this isn't any sort of deal breaker, and you know, are the shares a great buy today? No. The, the time to buy was when the bad news was actually happening. This is just, you know, a, a small-scale ripple effect. And it is a real amount of capital. Like, JPM could have done something with that money. That said, in the grand scheme of things, this isn't going to be a huge deal. Diamond, this, this fine, J- Jamie Diamond, the CEO, uh, sent out a memo to employees where, among other things, he stated, we're not out of the woods yet. There are still some outstanding... Well, he's got to say that. What's he going to be like, pop the champagne? You know, like it, you... I'm not saying he says, let's pop the champagne, but I, I guess my question is, how worried are you that this is, this is not the end for them? That, to your point about the internal controls, that we're only going to see more of this type of incident for J.P. Morgan? I think we're kind of in the realm of uh, controlling the story and spin at this point. Because there's been more rumbling about new controls on capital levels at banks here in the U.S., which had kind of died away for a while, but that's come back. And more or less, more regulation here would mean lower returns for the banks. And so they'd like to avoid that. So, you know, Diamond and the other bankers are putting the best foot forward and uh, demonstrating a lot of uh, we're sorriness. And we'll see how it goes. Ron, let's pull back from JP Morgan. Last question on this topic. Instead of fining the firm and essentially hitting the shareholders to the tune of $900 million, what about fining the CEO? What about fining the executives? Not that amount of money, but saying to them, you know what? You were This was on your watch that this happened. We are fining you, in this case, Jamie Dimon. We're fining you $5 million, and it's coming out of your pocket. You certainly would. Uh, you would expect people to be more careful, I guess, if that happens. But then you'd probably start seeing contracts where the CEOs insist that they get indemnified for potential fines like that. Otherwise, you you would have. Uh, you know, there wouldn't be people willing to to take those positions if they were going to be on the hook personally. It's like, like we that. need a. It's like we need a commissioner. It's like the NFL, <laughs> or you know, it's some guy who literally says, "Oh no, oh Jamie Diamond saw what you did last week. Five million dollar fine." Yeah, I mean, practically speaking, you get an organization with tens of thousands of people dealing with financial contracts, trades every day. Mistakes do happen. In this case, it was a massive mistake, a London Whale-sized mistake, but they do ultimately happen. And I'm not sure that that's always necessarily it should be a financial backbreaker for a CEO. Last week, we talked about Pandora's new CEO. This week, shares up another 12% on the news that a secondary offering of 10 million shares is coming to raise $235 million. What is going on with this stock? <laughs> well, it's just, it's the same thing we saw with LinkedIn a couple weeks ago. You know, it, it issued stock, initially sold off, but then actually hit a new all-time high. And I think with Pandora, I think the excitement here is about Pandora. The new CEO is kind of an interesting story, but mainly it's about, I think, the emergence of internet radio. And I think iTunes Radio, which a lot of people think is going to compete with Pandora, is, is more or less legitimizing internet radio as a platform. And Pandora's got the biggest platform. It's got 75 million listeners. Uh, it's, it's out there. So, the raising this capital to do you know, to do what with it? It's a good time to raise capital. The, the stock, the company, the stock is very expensive. And so, it could be, it's, it is a positive sign in my view. It's a good use of, good use of capital, I guess. You can follow the show on Twitter at Motley Fool Money is our handle. Got a question on Twitter from Logan Zuber in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He writes, Can you give advice for young investors? I'm 18 years old and a business econ finance major at Indiana Tech. Go Warriors. Uh, what should I focus on studying? Is there anything I should read with a $500 portfolio? What should I invest in? There's a lot 
to chew on there, Ron. Let's start with advice in terms of reading. I'm assuming he's got plenty of textbooks. What yeah. else can he read to make him a better investor? There's obviously so many good books for beginners out there, but I'm a big fan of the collection of um, essays of, of Warren Buffett, um, all his uh, former sh- um, shareholder um, the annual, letter. annual letters. Um, study those. You really can't get any better advice um, than reading through uh, the Oracle's uh, words. Matt? I, I That's a great one. I, w- I would think I'd, I'd go with Peter Lynch, uh, his book, One Up on Wall Street. Peter Lynch, for me, pound for pound, year for year, is the best investor we ever saw. And one thing that, you know, one of the big things with Peter Lynch is that he, he bought a lot about what he knows, you know, things that he had interactions with on a daily basis. And as a, as a young 18 year old in college, you know, you're, you're, I don't know. You're playing video games. You're going to Starbucks. You're 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 experiencing products. No, and no, brands. no. He's a hardworking. Student. Oh, well, besides, yeah, after yeah, all that. No, no. Logan, Logan's hitting the books. That's right. But he's you know he's experiencing products and brands all all day. And to take another look at those companies and see if those are companies you might want to invest in. Joe, reading uh, advice. The little book that builds wealth by mm-hmm. Pat Dorsey. It's the best discussion of competitive advantage and moats out there. All right, let's move to the stock angle here. We can't tell him what to invest in, but we can give him some stocks for a watch list. What do you think, Ron? I think uh, Maddie nailed it on the head. Where uh, kind of the Peter Lynch model of you should invest in in things you're familiar with, things you like. Um, if he's a sports fan, if he likes ESPN, Disney's a great choice. If him and his buddies are going out for burritos, Chipotle is a great choice. Something that he cares about and can really watch from a business perspective. Matt, yeah, and, and if you like. You know, if you like playing Call of Duty or World of Warcraft, which you might, you know, Activision Blizzard to me is is the best company in the video game space, um, and to me, it's the most attractive in terms of valuation as well. So take a look, Joe. Yeah, and if you're buying stuff you don't need, check out Amazon. Ah, <laughs> uh, let's bring in our man Steve Brodo from the other side of the glass. Uh, Steve, whether it's reading advice or a stock idea, or frankly just life advice, because once upon a time you were a young college student, uh, what do you say to our man in Indiana? I would say uh, figure out how you like spending your time and uh, try to figure that out as early as possible in your life because if you can figure that out, you're 10 steps ahead of just about everybody else. You're talking about free time here? Yes, all your free time. Where do you like spending your free time? Because that's going to really decide what what you're going to do in the rest of your life. Steve is so deep. Deep thoughts. That's how I roll. (laughs) Do you have, uh, because you're also a very avid investor as well, do you have a stock idea that he can put on his watch list? Um, a stock idea. You know, I bought some um, Sirius Satellite Radio a long time ago, around 30-some cents. It's at $3.80-some cents now. Ooh. I still think Sirius Satellite Radio is going to be around for a long time. Ooh, bigger than Internet Radio? Did, did Much Steve, bigger than Internet Radio. Ooh. Did Steve just use the stock idea as an opportunity to take a victory lap? On <laughs> he how may it, have. How he's it's not a victory lap. He's 10 he just <laughs> dumped on all of us. He's 10X on his Sirius XM stock? <laughs> all right. Ron Gross, Matt Argusinger, Joe Mager. Guys, thanks for being here. We'll see you a little bit later in the show. Coming up, some have called it more secretive than the CIA. But next, filmmaker Jim Bruce is going to take us inside the Federal Reserve. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. All we hear is Radio Gaga, Radio Gugu, Radio Gaga. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Henry Ford once said, It's good people don't understand our banking and monetary system, for if they did, there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. At the heart of that system is the Federal Reserve, a subject tackled 
by writer-director Jim Bruce in his new documentary film, Money for Nothing, Inside the Federal Reserve. Jim, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, I want to get to your film in a second, but first, there were not a lot of investors, professional or otherwise, who really saw the 2008 financial crisis coming, but it does seem like you were one of them. So, if you can, take me back to 2002. You just finished working on a horror movie. You're in Hawaii with your family and friends. Everyone's looking to hit the surf and relax. And for some reason, you seem pretty intensely focused on the stock market. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, my my interest in the Fed does go back a while. And um, and trying to sort of piece together the post-tech bubble investment world as just a small investor in, in, in 2000, 2001, 2002, I started looking at at Fed policy, and then I I started reading people who were who were warning about um, you know some imbalances in the system, primarily mortgage debt, um, you know things we came to know as uh, you know securitized mortgages, CDOs, MBS, all that stuff, and and you know I think the signs were there. Not many people were looking at them. But, you know I I was. I think I was fortunate to be reading some people who were, you know, economists who were talking about these problems and just started paying attention myself and thinking about, you know, how to invest accordingly, how to sort of navigate that world as, as the housing bubble just kind of blew up. Uh, I was living in Southern California watching it all around me, watching people, you know, make all these crazy decisions that at the time seemed, you know, it, everybody was doing it kind of, but then in retrospect it seems like... Um, you know, almost unbelievable that some of these things happened. Um, and so, so you know, my background was, was just trying to look at um, at these big-picture forces that were happening in our economy and trying to understand them. And I think that's what I'm trying to do in the film, is, is give people a way to look at the economy through the lens of the Federal Reserve and to see some of the big trends we've been living through uh, in recent decades from kind of a wider angle um, and then you sort of begin to question question some of those things. For those who don't follow the Federal Reserve all that closely, what is the primary purpose of the Fed, and how has it changed over the years? I mean, it, it's the Fed is, is a complicated institution to explain. It's it was originally intended just to really be a, a backstop for the banking system um, to do some very simple things to ensure that we didn't sort of have a shortage of credit. Uh, in, in these panics that we tended to have in the 19th century. A lot of times it happened in the fall. Um, it even had to do with the agricultural season uh, in the sense that farmers had sort of spent all their money and they hadn't started to be paid for things yet. So the Fed was supposed to just kind of smooth out our financial system. Uh, it wasn't even supposed to supervise um, the dollar or inflation or some of the things it does now. Um, today's Fed is, has two mandates, one to maintain price stability, so to keep a lid on inflation, uh, keep the dollar at a, at a reasonable uh, value. Uh, the, other, the other mandate is, is to try to create strong economic growth and full employment. Um, and lastly, the Fed is also seen as a regulator. It, it, it serves as the, probably the most powerful banking regulator. Um, and even in the wake of the crisis, has gotten some more powers to sort of try to oversee the financial system in general. Um, and so it's got all these things that, it, that we're asking it to do. And one of the questions of the film is, is or one of the things the film points out is that at different times, the sort of mandate to, to create strong economic growth and employment 
um, sometimes conflicts with the idea of overseeing the financial system and trying to make sure it's a stable one. Uh, I think that's what we point out in the early to mid-2000s. Uh, a lot of people would argue that in trying to create faster growth or more employment, um, the Fed really really fueled a giant housing and credit bubble, and that that was disastrous for financial stability. So the Fed is trying to it's trying to do a lot of things, and, and in the film we sort of question whether the Fed is trying to do too many things uh, because their role has really expanded um, since the Fed was first created. Well, among other things, the Federal Reserve is known for being a secretive institution. How did you gain access to the Fed and, as importantly, its key players? Not easily. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it took some time to, uh, you know, there's a lot of people in the film that 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 viewers or commentators are almost sort of surprised that we have the lineup that we do. Um, Paul Volcker was a former Fed chair. Uh, Janet Yellen, who now seems likely to be the next Fed chair. Um, a, a number of current Federal Reserve Bank presidents who are you know voting on interest rates sort of as we speak. Um, uh, a lot of former Fed officials, and then you know, and then we also have a lot of you know outsiders and investors and, and people with different perspectives. Um, but you know, I think I was able to convince the people at the Fed that I that the film wasn't about conspiracy theories; that it would be, you know, it would be, you know, reasoned and balanced, and and that you know, while it would be critical, it, the criticism would also be constructive. And I think we, I think we stuck to that promise. You know, we tried. The film isn't, you know, it's very critical of Fed policies in some cases, but we we try not to demonize the institution. Or you know, I, I don't think having met all these. Um, these officials, they have good intentions. They're trying to do the best they can. They have a very hard job. So, so I think we do justice to that, but we also sort of question um, some of the choices they've made and some of the choices they're making. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Jim Bruce. His new documentary film is Money for Nothing Inside the Federal Reserve. You mentioned Janet Yellen, the vice chairman. She is widely thought at the moment to be the successor to Ben Bernanke. I am curious, though, because when I think about the Federal Reserve, I think about the chairman. I know there are a lot of people who work there. There are different people sitting on the board of governors. But it really does seem to me as an institution where the person who is at the top, Paul Volcker, Alan Greenspan, Ben Bernanke, wields an inordinate amount of power. Now, is that my getting the wrong image, or does the chairman of the Federal Reserve really have an outsized amount of power within the institution? I mean, it's one of the peculiarities of the Fed in some ways that um, there's been different times in history when the Fed didn't have really the when the when the Fed chairman didn't have the confidence of his. Uh, of, of the committee, not not many times, but a few of those times, and it was sort of deemed disastrous. I mean, at one point, I, I believe in Paul Volcker's career, he was sort of set to lose a vote, and it's sort of understood that if you lose a vote as chairman, you should resign. It's, it's sort of that extreme uh, view. So, so it's a chicken or the egg thing that the chairman is really seen, you know, as guiding as guiding the group and. Historically, that sometimes means that the, that the chairman will change his position a little more to fit the group if there's a there's a strong consensus in the group. Um, but the other interesting thing about how the Fed operates is that they do tend to do something called consensus voting, which means that if there's 12 people voting on interest rates, for example, they don't necessarily all vote how they feel about what what should be done. They don't they don't all just raise their hand for for one way or the other. Um, what they tend to do is if they sense that the majority is going to move 
one way, people will generally, even if they don't don't agree with that decision, they'll side with the majority. So there's usually, even if there's a lot of, you know, discussion and debate within the group, there's usually only one or two, or, or at the most, I think I've ever heard, three dissents. And the others will sort of fall in place. And that's because they don't want to send a message to markets that the Fed doesn't know what it's going to do next. They, they want to present a sort of unified um, perspective to markets, to markets have a sense of where the Fed is headed. And so sometimes that's misleading. And I think you could argue that, that we might be better off if there was a little more willingness to dissent, because I think the end result is that usually if the chairman wants to do something, people tend to fall in line with them. Um, and as you saw sort of in the Alan Greenspan years, uh, sometimes the policies weren't, you know, they weren't the best choices. And and people didn't really, I, I don't think, um, you know, stand up to some of those decisions. And and it and it, the Fed did sort of go wherever he wanted to go. Um, so I think you can question the the how how powerful the the chairman is uh, uh, from time to time. I think we've seen it with with Greenspan. I think we may be seeing it with Bernanke as he's stepping down. There's probably a lot of uh, people at the Fed who might who might think it's time to ease off on policy. But I can imagine at, at his last meeting, if Ben Bernanke wants things to go a certain way, that, that people would fall in line. Let's go back to Alan Greenspan for a second, because at one point in time when he was chairman of the Fed, he really had rock star status helping to oversee the nation's longest expansion. But he also helped, as you pointed out, lay the groundwork for the financial crisis of 2008. How should history remember Alan Greenspan? I mean, you know, I think of him as sort of a fallen hero, a sort of classic tragic hero, you know, in the sense that I think early in his career he was very successful, um, especially through the mid-'90s. Um, and, you know, you, you could imagine if he retired in 1995 that he, you know, he would have gone out on top, so to speak. Um, you know, as it happened, it, you know, in the late-'90s, the stock, you know, tech bubble got really out of hand, and Greenspan actually cut interest rates right in the middle of that bubble uh, and and decided consciously, you know, made, made the choice that he wasn't going to resist the bubble in any way, was just going to let it build. Um, and then, of course, as it collapsed, he fueled another bubble with the, with the housing bubble. You know, the Fed was conscious of what they were doing. They thought the financial system could handle the risk. Um, you know, they thought it was a calculated choice they were making. Uh, and it all you know, it all failed pretty pretty badly. And I think, you know, I think you could you could argue he's almost a mythological character. He he flew too close to the sun. You know, he was he was viewed as someone who who couldn't fail. Um, and maybe you know, as he got older and and sort of more entrenched in his position, he might have taken some chances um, that he might not have when he, when he was um, you know when he wasn't viewed as this as this you know sort of wizard behind the curtain. So I think. You know, one of the things that film hopefully does is to humanize these characters and to let people know that that Fed leaders, uh, as powerful as they may be, and Bernanke, you could argue right now, is the most powerful force in the global economy. Um, you know, they're capable of making mistakes. They're capable of not seeing uh, problems that are building up. So, so we should be skeptical about about what our leaders are saying, and we should question the policies they're choosing. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Jim Bruce. His new documentary film is Money for Nothing Inside the Federal Reserve. You taped 70, 80 hours worth of interviews for this film. What surprised you the most when you were working on it? 
Um, I mean, I, I was just happy with how um, I think, you know, we taped lengthy interviews with people, and I think it enabled them to to get comfortable, you know, uh, on a CNBC interview when you have three minutes, you know, sometimes you just, you know, people just say their talking points or just spit out a soundbite. I think um, I think we got people to really share their views and share their opinions uh, in an unguarded way. Um, and I think I think people will be surprised, for example, that Paul Volcker, you know, you know, sides with our with our theory that basically low interest rates led to a big huge boom and a big huge bust. You know, he sort of says it in those in those simple words. And um, and so it surprised me, you know, how honest uh, officials were willing to be. They're willing to be critical of the institution. Um, but I think, you know, also as you interview these people, you realize that it's not easy to be in a position of power. Um, you know, it, it wouldn't have been easy for anyone uh, in 2005 or four to say, hey, there's a housing bubble. We should raise interest rates to stop it, or we should stop fueling it with low interest rates, or or we should cut off all these mortgages, um, which are allowing people to take too much risk. You know, there would have been a huge amount of resistance to that. And so I think the film points out that, that you know that's one of the challenges that we we almost we, we hold Volcker up to you know to sort of hero status because he did stand up to a lot of um, uh, a lot of pressure and a lot of frustration in his policies and we argue that he, he he created policies that helped people in the long run and I think that's one of the the messages of the film is that we'd like the Fed to be willing to stand up and take the heat and do something that might not be the most popular thing in the short term, but in the long run, it's going to make us all better off. Now, this is a documentary film that, to a large degree, you have self-financed, but you have also worked on big-budget films like The Incredible Hulk and a couple of the X-Men movies. Compared to those experiences, what is the best thing about making your own documentary, and what is the worst thing? Uh, it's, well, it's the same thing. The independence is the best thing. I mean, creatively... It's funny. The, the Fed independence is a big issue. Uh, it's widely, you know, stated in, in economic circles that the Fed really needs to be independent of political influence so they can make the right decision for the long term. And I feel like, creatively, as I was making this film, I really valued the independence I had by by doing it somewhat on my own and not having a studio come in and say, "You need to simplify this. You know, you need to dumb it down," or, or the types of notes you might expect to get from a from a studio that wants a film to be accessible to the to the broadest possible audience. So I felt like the best thing about making a film on your own is is that you have the freedom creatively to make the film that you want to make. Um, that comes with the the flip side of it is that you don't always have the financing. So so I did put my life savings, which I had doubled in the years leading up to the crisis by shorting financial stocks. I put that into the film. Uh, we also had to raise money on Kickstarter and donations through a 501c3. So we spent a lot of our time while making the film, you know, seeking out money uh, and, and kind of, you know, proceeding in a hand-to-mouth fashion. So that's the, the hard part was not having, you know, the budget all the way through and having to, to continually raise money um, uh, to keep going. Um, but then the beauty of it is I was able to make the film I wanted to make. Money for Nothing Inside the Federal Reserve opens in select uh, cities across America this month, including Boston, Los Angeles, Houston, and right across the Potomac River in Washington, D.C. And for more information, you can check out the film's website, moneyfornothingthemovie.org. Jim Bruce, good luck with the film. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money.
As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio once again, Joe Mager, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. Time once again for the stocks on our radar. Ron Gross, what do you got? I got Titan International, TWI, manufacturer of wheels and tires for industrial uh, uses. Now, on Friday, they withdrew their guidance for fiscal 2013, Uh which is a little Mm. scary. Stock got smacked. But we believe in the long-term thesis quite a bit. We think this is just a short-term problem. It's an opportunity to pick the stock up cheap. I think uh, you can make 50 60% on, on your money here. Wow. Let's bring in our man Steve from the other side of the glass. Steve, question about Titan? How would I come across an opportunity like this as a layperson? You listen to this show. <laughs> you could. They actually publish on the intranet or even in the old-fashioned newspapers stocks that, that fall quite a bit on any given day, and you can check out, and then you can go see why. And if you think the why is a short-term problem, then that could be a long-term And is that how you found this opportunity? We happen to actually own this, and we're recommending it, so we keep a close eye on it. Maddie, what do you got? I got Take Two Interactive. TTWO is the ticker. Um, sticking with the video game space, uh, Take Two owns Rockstar Games, which is the owner of the Grand Theft Auto franchise. Grand Theft Auto V came out this past week. First day, $800 million in sales. Fastest-selling fast video game of all time. Fastest-selling entertainment product of all time. Probably gonna, probably has already hit a billion by it now. It did, yeah. Okay, there yeah. you go. So Joe's already up to date. Interestingly enough, though, this is usually the time you want to sell Take-Two, because it's, it's had a tremendous run. <laughs> in years where it comes out with a Grand Theft Auto, which is every three to four or five years, um, you know, the stock gets really bit up. Um, but after that happens... You know, they, they, there's a little bit of vacuum in, in Take Two's uh, franchise uh, portfolio. So, I'm watching the stock only because I, I feel like this might be one. It's it's near a year high. It might be one to fall off. Steve, question about Take Two Interactive? So this is a pretty violent uh, video game, Grand Theft Auto Five. Should I let my son play this game? How old is your son? He's two. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say maybe you know within a year. No, no, definitely not. I, I'd say this is rated MA, which is I think 18 and over. So make sure he's at least in first grade. <laughs> Joe Maker, we got about a minute left. What do you got this week? TD Ameritrade, ticker is AMTD. That's one of the few companies that will actually make more money when interest rates rise, and I think it's one of the cheap ways for you to get exposure to that. It's a nice hedge if you have a lot of bonds in your portfolio. You do well when rates rise. It's incredibly profitable, and they're paying a nice little dividend that's about to get raised in a big way. I think it's a great natural hedge and a great stock to own in its own right. That's another Omaha company, isn't it? It is. Do you ever go visit them when you go out to Berkshire? No, I'm usually pretty busy. <laughs> you're, you're knee deep in the seas, yeah. candy. Uh, Steve, question about TD Ameritrade? They are a product of a merger and probably a merger before that. Will they yeah. be merging again? Good question. They are likely to buy E Trade, which I own both of these. They're likely to buy E Trade at some point down the line, but probably not till E Trade gets all its mortgage issues behind it. So maybe a couple of years. Joe out. owns every stock in the universe. Just throwing that out there. Not Tesla. Any oh. of those three attractive to you, uh, <laughs> Steve? I don't know. I have some free time this weekend. I may like to shoot something. So we're going to take two. <laughs> take two interactive. All right. Joe Mager, Matt Argusinger, Ron Gross. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank thanks, you. Chris. That's going to do it for this edition of Motley Fool Money. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Thanks.